1: In The Recovering, Leslie Jameson turns our understanding of the traditional addiction narrative on its head, demonstrating that the story of recovery can be every bit as electrifying as the train wreck itself. Leslie Jameson definitely excavates the stories we tell about addiction, both her own and others, and examines what we want these stories to do and what happens when they fail us. Is there in glowing praise, Stephen King called it vivid required reading. Chris Krauss named it a definitive investigation both the romance of intoxication and the possibilities of recovery. Graceful, forensic, and intimate, a new bar in addiction studies. Leslie Jamison is the author of the essay collection The Empathy Exams, a New York Times bestseller, and the novel The Gin Closet, a finalist for the Los Angeles Times Book Prize. Her work has appeared in the New York Times Magazine, Harper's, and the Oxford American, among others, and she's a columnist for the New York Times Book Review. She teaches at Columbia University and lives in Brooklyn with her family. Maggie Nelson is a poet, art critic, and lyric essayist. She's the author of The Argonauts, The Red Parts, A Memoir, The Art of Cruelty, Bluets, and Jane, A Murder. The Art of Cruelty was named a 2011 Notable Book of the Year by the New York Times, and Jane, A Murder, was a finalist for the Penn Martha Auburn Award, for the Art of Memoir. She's the recipient of a Mark Arthur Fellowship and currently teaches at USC. We're incredibly fortunate to have them with us this evening. Please join me in welcoming Leslie Jameson and Maggie <coughs>
2: Um, yeah, I, I am from LA, so this event is particularly meaningful to me. Um, and I thought I'm just gonna read a little bit from the beginning of this book and then we can talk and then maybe we'll open it up to some questions. Um. yeah, thank you all for coming. The first time I ever felt it, The buzz. I was almost 13. I didn't vomit or black out or even embarrass myself. I just loved it. I loved the crackle of champagne, its hot pine needles down my throat. We were celebrating my brother's college graduation and I wore a long muslin dress that made me feel like a child until I felt something else initiated, a glow. The whole world stood accused. You never told me it felt this good. The first time I ever drank in secret, I was 15. My mom was out of town. My friends and I spread a blanket across living room hardwood and drank whatever we could find in the fridge, chardonnay wedged between the orange juice and the mayonnaise. We were giddy from a sense of trespass. The first time I ever got high, I was smoking pot on a stranger's couch, my fingers dripping pool water as I dampened the joint with my grip. A friend of a friend had invited me to a swimming party. My hair smelled like chlorine, and my body quivered against my damp bikini. Strange little animals blossomed through my elbows and shoulders where the parts of me bent and connected. I thought, what is this? And how can it keep being this? With a good feeling, it was always more, again, forever. The first time I ever drank with a boy, I let him put his hands under my shirt on the wooden balcony of a lifeguard station. Dark waves shushed the sand below our dangling feet. My first boyfriend. He liked to get high, he liked to get his cat high. We used to make out in his mother's minivan. He came to a family meal at my house, fully wired on speed. So talkative, said my grandma, deeply smitten. At Disneyland, he broke open a baggie of withered mushroom caps and started breathing fast and shallow in line for Big Thunder Mountain Railroad, sweating through his shirt, pawing at the orange rocks of the fake frontier. If I had to say where my drinking began, which first time began it... I might say it started with my first blackout or maybe the first time I sought blackout, the first time I wanted nothing more than to be absent from my own life. Maybe it started the first time I threw up from drinking, the first time I dreamed about drinking, the first time I lied about drinking, the first time I dreamed about lying about drinking, when the craving had gotten so deep there wasn't much of me that wasn't committed to either serving or fighting it. Maybe my drinking began with patterns rather than moments once I started drinking every day which happened in Iowa City, where the drinking didn't seem dramatic and pronounced so much as encompassing and inevitable. There were so many ways and places to get drunk. The fiction bar in a smoky double-wide trailer with a stuffed fox head and a bunch of broken clocks. Or the poetry bar down the street with its anemic cheeseburgers and glowing Schlitz ad, a scrolling electric landscape. The gurgling stream, the neon grassy banks, the flickering waterfall. I mashed the lime in my vodka tonic and glimpsed in the sweet spot between two drinks and three, then three and four, then four and five, my life as something illuminated from the inside. There were parties at a place called the farmhouse out in the cornfields, past Friday fish fries at the American Legion. These were parties where poets wrestled in a kiddie pool full of jello, and everyone's profile looked beautiful in the crackling light of a mattress bonfire. Winters were cold enough to kill you. There were endless potlucks where older writers brought braised meats and younger writers brought plastic tubs of hummus and everyone brought whiskey and everyone brought wine winter kept going we kept drinking then it was spring we kept drinking then too sitting on a folding chair in a church basement you always face the question of how to begin It has always been a hazard for me to speak at an AA meeting, a man named Charlie told an a Cleveland AA meeting in 1959, because I knew that I could do better than other people. I really had a story to tell. I was more articulate. I could dramatize it, and I would really knock them dead. He explained the hazard like this. He'd gotten praised. He'd gotten proud. He'd gotten drunk. Now he was talking to a big crowd about how dangerous it was for him to talk to a big crowd. He was describing the perils of an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. He was being articulate about being articulate. He was dramatizing what the art of dramatizing had done to him. He said, I think I got tired of being my own hero. Fifteen years earlier, he published a best-selling novel about alcoholism while sober, but he relapsed a few years after it became a bestseller. "'I've written a book that's been called the definitive portrait of the alcoholic,' he told the group, and it did me no good. It was only after five minutes of talking that Charlie finally thought to begin the way others began. "'My name is Charles Jackson,' he said and I'm an alcoholic. By coming back to the common refrain, he was reminding himself that commonality could be its own saving grace. My story isn't much different from anyone's, he said. It's the story of a man who was made a fool of by alcohol over and over and over, year after year after year, until finally the day came when I learned that I could not handle this alone. Thanks.
3: Hi everybody, hi Leslie. I mean, it's so, nice to see you. so yes. such a pleasure to, to be able to come out. I think with, and with all of you to celebrate Leslie's um, new book. So just congratulations first of all. It's so exciting. So um, they were telling me that I should t- ask you questions for about 15 minutes, then open it up, which is a small amount of the time, uh, a ratio of the time that I would um, prefer to talk to you about your book. So I'll just try and um, get through a few of these, and then I'll turn it over to this great big crowd. But um, I was just really curious to start off with and I'm sorry this is the kind of origin story boring question but I just you know I was very curious because I've known you throughout hearing little tidbits about when you were working on this and I'm always very interested with nonfiction with anything really but how um, in such a huge project like formally speaking at what point did you kind of know what you wanted I mean how you wanted the um, balance of other people's stories and yours to be and then in this very lovely her chapter is our wonder, abandon, I won't read them all blame, lack, shame, surrender so it has this kind of structure um, by affect or abstraction and I wonder just when it all came together in that way for you I don't think it's a boring
2: story (laughs) question at all but I might be biased um, because it's like 8 years of my my life but um, yeah I mean I feel like I knew what I wanted this book to be like a long time before I realized how I could make it that thing structurally or formally. Um, and it really felt like my notion of, of my desire for what the book would be came, felt like a kind of confluence of rivers um, where there was writing that I started to do in early sobriety about eight years ago um, just about the experience. And it didn't have a, I didn't have an end game in mind. It didn't have a, I, I certainly didn't think that I was going to write a book about it, but I was writing I was writing about early sobriety as a way to survive early sobriety and to kind of make sense of what it felt like and try to kind of transcribe the raw nerve endings of that experience. Um, and so there were little bits and pieces of, of personal writing that were happening that um, actually were, existed in documents that had largely abstract names on my computer. Because mm-hmm. so I think that was like, there was a... Um, a lot of there was like shame one, shame two, shame three, um, and they were they were attempts to try to organize what I was feeling in this, in, the, in that really like, um, I describe early sobriety in the book a lot in terms of bright winter light, like the bright winter light of Iowa, and that really is what that time felt like to me, like I was waking up in certain ways. Um, and then I, I, I started a um, an academic project when I was getting my doctoral degree that was an investigation of um, various writers who had gotten sober or tried to get sober and I was thinking about them in relation to different recovery institutions. Mm -hmm. So thinking about Charlie Jackson in relation to AA and Berryman and Wallace in relation to rehab and a kind of network of writers in relation to this um, strange institution that was founded in the 30s in Kentucky called the Narco Farm, which was a, a prison hospital talk more about it if you want to, but um, that, that academic project was a very selfish academic project because it was really my attempt to uh, look at other people's lives and work to see what sobriety had done to their creative process um, and to try to think about recovery as a generative space rather than a kind of loss of this um, generative dysfunction that, that certainly I had kind of fallen into this sort of association between creativity and dysfunction. So I wanted to see what I, I called that project speculative autobiography at a certain mm-hmm. point because it was not personal at all but it was an attempt to figure out what sobriety had done for other people's lives. So I um, at a certain point I started to think what if that academic project mm-hmm. and uh, which was taking place a lot and, mm-hmm. in archives could kind of fold into this mm-hmm. more personal narration, what would that look like? Mm-hmm. And it immediately felt right to me because I um, there are a number of, of addiction and recovery memoirs, like straight memoirs, even, I think that's term. what is a straight memoir even, mm-hmm. but um, the, that have meant a lot to me. But I knew from, from really early on that if I was going to write uh, my personal story, I wanted it to be part of this chorus of stories. And so then the question was, where am I going to find those stories and how am I going to weave them together? And so I started to use those stories that I was finding in the archives I did, I spent about a year doing a bunch of interviewing to, to mm-hmm. gather some other stories. Um, and then it, the, the, the headings that you described mm-hmm. felt like a way to arrange that chorus of voices in mm-hmm. some way that made sense. I mean, there's a, also a pretty chronological structure mm-hmm. to it's my own mm-hmm. story, but um, mm-hmm. in terms of thinking, okay, what are the points where these stories mm-hmm. touch or connect? Um, those ideas were were, were, mm-hmm. were ways of um, mapping those connections
3: mm-hmm. for me. Yeah, I mean, what that the effect that you're describing about your story and this chorus of other stories. I mean, you say this explicitly, so I'm not pointing out anything that you, that you haven't said in here. But that you know, there's a relationship to the big book and a relationship, and obviously to the meeting structure, but also to. Um, uh, but the big book. I was really fascinated in this book, and that like, you know. I think that literature, like written by writers, which you came out what you just read um, as testament to addiction, is always um, uh, I don't know what the word is, like not sullied by being literature, but it's not, you know, it's trying to do something besides bear witness or something. And then you have just the kind of stories that are told in meetings or stories, you know, as you say, that don't worry about cliche or the things in the book. And I wonder since your book, I think there's this really interesting thing of kind of reading, kind of of bringing into the literary realm, the storytelling that attends recovery, you know, in the big book in particular, with literature than with your own. I just wonder what you, if you thought
2: about that triumvirate, you know. Yeah, yeah, um, I I did. And I, I, you know, I think one of the um, many driving questions underneath this book had to do with the different imperatives that surround storytelling in literary spheres or worlds that I had been a part of, and then recovery worlds that I had been a part of. And one of the things that was really moving to me about recovery and very striking to me about recovery was it was, on the one hand, there was something very familiar to me about it because it was a world driven by storytelling. Um, But the point of stories was different. So Mm -hmm. certain things that um, were almost Second nature in certain literary worlds that I was a part of, like um, the idea, the ideal of originality, for example, like that you would um, either want to tell a story that had never been told, or else if you were already reconciled to the idea that every story had already been told, that you would want to tell a story in a different way than it had ever been told, um, and and that you would tell that story in the service of beauty, in the service of complexity, in the, in the, in the service of revelation, um, and, and in recovery I found that there was um, the imperative of originality was almost like turned on its head, where the whole point of a story was to tell an unoriginal story that had been told before would be told again, um, and that, that that kind of unoriginal quality wasn't a failure, it was like really the point in a certain way, the idea that a story could be interchangeable. Um, and so I wanted to think about like wh- how, what was saving about both of those modes of storytelling, and not I, I wasn't coming at it with some desire to kind of like conflate the differences between different storytelling practices. Mm-hmm. I, I like the idea that storytelling might happen for different reasons mm-hmm. in different worlds, but to think about um, how do these different kinds of stories. Um, Work. How are we saved by them in different ways? How do like? How does the idea of resonance work differently in literature and and than it does in a meeting? Um, And then you know to to bring stories into the folds of this book um, that were both that you might encounter in the way that you would encounter stories in recovery. Although it's important to say also that I everybody whose story I really used in this book was somebody that I approached. as a writer, and as a journalist, and made very explicit, you know, our, our interviews were with the understanding that they, they wanted their stories to be in this book, which was important to me process-wise, but, um, that you know, I I, I really wanted to, to both offer their stories, but then also to kind of think about the architecture of those stories. So why did this person come to tell a particular story about their addiction and sobriety? One man that I spoke to told his recovery story as a kind of... Um, an upward mobility story where it was, say, important for him to also talk about how much money he'd made in sobriety. And and there was something about that that was, like, slightly off-putting to me, but I also wanted to analyze, well, how was that part of how he told the story of his survival? He needed to understand his sobriety as um, having done certain things for him, and in, in the way that that was part of how he kind of saved himself, and wrote the story of his own like reincarnation, there was also something deeply meaningful to me about it. So I guess I wanted to be both like an honoring witness and um, an analytic interlocutor and, and and wanted to believe that there was a, w- a form of analytic encounter that wouldn't have to be like a skeptical interrogation.
3: I mean, you write in here about, um, about David Foster Wallace and about, I mean, I guess, you know, well, let me put it this way, there's a lot of people I feel like I know that are of maybe some of my generation, maybe some of yours, I think they're a little older than you, but like um, who are coming up with a, um, a a different notion of kind of fidelity to some of the principles specifically about anonymity um, and about representing, you know, oneself in print and, and talking about, I was saying David Foster Walls because there's a lot of fictional representations of the program and I think there's more and more in non-fiction and um, I was just curious is it, do you do you, and I think this relates to in the in the I don't know if it's the afterward or just the last part of um, uh, I guess it's in home I, mean, I guess it's in the author's note, yeah, but you actually get into um, other uh, other kind of policy issues in and around whether or not um, certain you know substances that one takes to be you know, block opioids or different things can be tolerated within recovery communities such as AA or stuff like that. So I wonder do you see this book as kind of, I don't know of a new chapter, but just kind of a furthering of public discussion of addiction in that way, you
2: know. Yeah, I mean, I, I very much want it to be, and I guess, um, yeah, there are so many different, like, yeah. little roots leading off that question in a great way, but, um, yeah, I think in terms of thinking about how this book was going to talk about AA and, and the program, I, I both... You know, I made a very intentional choice around my own anonymity to break my own anonymity, but um, I also was there was a, a that came, I guess, from my experiences as a reader and how important it had been for me to read other people's representations of AA and recovery, and and that how much those representations like shaped my own desire and kind of planted a seed in me that eventually grew into my own experience of sobriety and recovery. Um, but I also. Um, I also wanted to write, in a sense, like a a love song to recovery, but that was also positioning 12-step recovery as one kind of recovery amongst many kinds of recovery. And and, um, at least in my own experience of recovery, part of what's felt liberating about it is the idea that it's like, if this works for you, great, and kind of there are many other things that might work for you or might work for someone else. And so I wanted the book to... um, be honoring AA and mm-hmm. really exploring, exploring it as this particular and pretty mm-hmm. singular and, and to me pretty amazing cultural phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Um, but to not, to, in that, in that kind of love song, mm-hmm. to not be blind to all the other ways that somebody mm-hmm. might get sober um, that I think are both important on sort of an interpersonal level to respect as paths to sobriety, but are also really important on a, on a kind of on a policy level in terms mm-hmm. of making room for. Mm-hmm. Um, Harm reduction for um, mm-hmm. medication-assisted treatment for these things that mm-hmm. sometimes historically twelve-step recovery has been slightly antagonistic towards, but mm-hmm. in no way I think intrinsically has mm-hmm. to be antagonistic mm-hmm. towards.
3: Did you feel like when you were writing? I mean, on that note, I mean, I'm sure when you're going around the country and talking about the book, people are probably talking a lot about you know opioids or different current uh, you know high-profile emergencies. But I wonder, and I I say this because I. Um, I've encountered this in my own reading and writing that it becomes very, I found it very difficult given the, the different, um, uh, the, the literally different ways that, that substances hook onto the brain, you know, very difficult when one's writing about addiction and recovery. Um, when you're playing, I mean, because I've done the same thing, where I'll be like, oh, Billy Holiday, and this person here, or whatever, and like, but you know, and you're kind of mo- you're moving around uh, these very different drugs, um, and then obviously addiction is the thing that holds them together. But I wonder when you were writing and or even reading all these different books, did you sometimes go, God, you know, coke just is not the same as you know being yeah. addicted to the yeah. yeah. the acid, but whatever, pick your other can, maybe you can. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, yeah, I mean, it, yes, I mean, um, I think there was a kind of. One of the questions that I got a lot as I was working on the book, and especially as I was working on my dissertation, was, um, is it about drinking or drugs? And in that sense, I think there was, um, maybe that question was coming from uh, an awareness of the ways in which, yeah, substances mm-hmm. have onto the brain in different ways. Um, but I, I felt often that that question was also coming out of our decades-long process of acculturation mm-hmm. to... Dr- dr- Certain substances is legal and other substances is illegal, mm-hmm. um, which is, yeah, it's sort of profoundly arbitrary mm-hmm. and has everything to do with like the end of prohibition and and um, how sort of impetus around anti-drug propaganda grew up in the immediate aftermath of prohibition. Um, so to me, it's much more honest to think about it. You know, I mean, the way that you were describing mm-hmm. that, like we have all these different substances, they all work in different ways. Many of them kind of Coax dependence, but they coax that dependence in different ways. And that to me, the to kind of think about them, to to separate them too much into, into different categories has historically been like toxic on the in the social imagination. I think in certain ways, but to conflate them all, I think can also be can also ignore just like how they do very different things to like a body and a spirit and a person. And so, to me, I think what I was interested in was this state of dependence and this kind of state of thrall, Mm -hmm. like when your life Mm -hmm. starts to feel like it revolves around this single object Mm -hmm. of obsession and um, one of the clinicians I spoke to, her definition of addiction um, was, she called it a a limiting of repertoire, mm-hmm. which on the one hand maybe feels like profound understatement, but I, I also really liked it, right? Like that it limited your repertoire. It felt like it des- it, mm-hmm. it described the kind of like narrowing aperture, the narrowing pinhole. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was like that narrowing aperture that felt like the experiential common thread as I was like darting between very different lives, very different substances, very different... Um, kind of legal and cultural responses to dependence, which I also talk about a bit in the book. Um, And then sort of recovery, I think in this weird way, recovery can kind of collapse some of the differences between substances because it's like people are there um, seeking similar sorts of relief for very different sorts of problems. So there can be a kind of a a way in which very different substance experiences um, come into conversation in that space.
3: Right, well, I, have, I have a lot more, but I'm going to turn it over to you guys, so. To Leslie. Thank you for
1: not remaining anonymous. Um, so we're 18 years, and I really appreciated that, because I think in that anonymity, you're not accomplishing some things, and thanks for coming out like that. It's really oh. appreciated. Okay. And um, in my spread, I've noticed my writing has changed and clarified and gotten deeper and more. Has your writing changed in, in, in your journey,
3: or what? can you guys hear in the back at all? Maybe I'll just say that he thanked her for her in, uh, for breaking her anonymity, and then also noting that his own writing changed and sobriety and got clearer. Right? Yeah, and it, wondering if Leslie had noticed anything like that.
2: Yeah, I mean it's it's um it's a great question, and and obviously I was consumed by that question of like how can recovery um, shape writing and kind of take writing in new directions rather than just being a sort of uh, crippling force or like a flatlining force. And, and I certainly, I didn't experience that like generative spark immediately. I mean, I remember a lot of early sobriety for me was like nights spent in coffee shops trying to write and with almost this like fervent termination like that I was gonna trade in nights of relief and drinking and not that drinking at that point always felt like relief but, but it, before I drank it always felt like it was going to feel like relief and um, that I was going to sort of turn in those nights for a different set of nights that were going to be like spent you know being like visited by the muse and a Lincoln like, and <laughs> Iowan coffee shop and I remember just like eating Stale, large cookies, and like trying to work on this novel that didn't feel like it had a pulse, and um, so there, there was, there was a lot of like, hand wringing in the beginning. Um, it didn't, it, it, didn't come like an if then. If I trade this thing in that I have come to believe my life somehow depends on, then I will get this other thing in return, which is like a new creativity. Um, but. Over the years, absolutely, I feel like recovery is, has um, shifted my writing in a number of ways. I mean, it, it recovery kind of fit into things that had already been abiding preoccupations for me that maybe I hadn't always labeled, but had been consumed by things like what does it mean for us to relate to each other's experiences, like what does empathy even mean when we use that word, um, what does it mean to feel somehow connected to another person's pain, all of those questions were questions that I was exploring in my life in recovery and exploring in my life as a writer. Um, and in terms of method, m- my writing had had never, my nonfiction had, had traditionally not really included anything like reportage or interviewing or like encounter, like kind of, going somewhere and encountering people and writing about that encounter um, in a kind of structured way and that idea of like showing up as a listener and and transcribing somehow the encounter between myself and another person's story in a way that was neither wholly about myself nor wholly about that other person like that didn't kind of obey that repertorial commandment of like dissolve thyself to be the most faithful transcriber of another person, which I'm not sure I've ever really believed. Um, but that idea that sort of multiple consciousnesses could be present on a page, um, and that idea of sort of just like tuning in and listening to so much of what was out there in these other lives, um, all of that felt like it was very much in conversation with recovery and that it was sort of like expanding my, my, my life and nonfiction in these, um, in these kind of interesting ways, so.
0: Hi. only it's great to see you to hear you um, my question is almost like a bit of the averse of the one that was just asked um, I I remember uh, hearing a share once uh, this guy he uh, named Shelley and uh, he, he took the stage and he asked everyone to be very quiet just a moment of silence. And then he, after everyone got quiet, he just launched into this incredible chair. And it was so articulate, it was so lyric, and it was so, he could thunder here, get people's, you know, cheers here, and, you know, make people laugh here. And it was like, it's like he was a, a or so just playing it, right? And it was a bit of a fit. And it was also, like, incredible. Mm-hmm. And afterwards, I thanked him, and I said, you know, you're really good at that. (laughs) And he looked at me to see where I was coming from with that. He looked at me and said, you're right, I am. And I thought, wow, that's incredibly humble on his part. I didn't think, wow, he's an egomaniac. Because he knew how good it was, and and he was using it in this Gift, which God knows what he used it for, he's probably like a flim-flam artist. You know, uh, when he was drinking, he was probably like a <coughs> terrible guy, but he was using it for, for this beautiful new purpose. So, in meetings, do you, um, your ability to be articulate, your ability to illuminate, your ability to find novel metaphor, do you ever find let that loose and and, and use and see it as a gift that it can actually not as a not as a super, not as a obscuring ornament, but mm-hmm. actually as an illuminating gift that, that is a gift do you uniquely can bring the meetings, or do you get self conscious about doing that?
3: Someone to some summarize Sure. I guess so. I thought maybe it was a little bit louder. You guys, can you still hear it? Yeah.
2: You heard that. One. Okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So thank you um, for that question, which I think is interesting, and, and it's clearly like really keyed into the, the second passage that I read about Charlie Jackson and articulating that anxiety about being his own hero and sort of seeing his own capacity to be articulate as um, as a dangerous force, right, because um, for him, I think he understood that danger as um, as the peril that his own articulateness was going to become some force that was feeding his ego, and that that was kind of contrary to the, the idea of ego surrender that was central to his understanding of recovery, so that when he was being too articulate, he was... Um, it was becoming more about him and less about the other people in the room. But, as I think your question so eloquently draws out, you know, being articulate can be seen as a gift to the other people in the room rather than a kind of assertion of ego at the, at the expense of the other people in the room or that sort of dissolves the other people in the room. And, and yeah, I can say a bit about myself, but I will also say that it was something that particular dilemma um, I saw in, in so many of the, in the writers that I was talking about, there's a moment where John Berryman, in, in his novel about recovery, his unfinished novel of recovery, called Recovery, um, he, he his character, who's cl- clearly a, kind of a manifestation of him, um, talks about, Hating when everybody says a Serenity Prayer, hating that he hears his practiced lecturer's voice sort of saying the prayer louder than everybody else, and in that moment he too was understanding his eloquence or or his voice as a kind of enemy to his recovery, and um, and I you know I guess I I ultimately am interested in the ways that. Uh, even though storytelling works very differently, as I was saying earlier, in the realm of literature and in the realm of recovery, that there are certain things that are shared, right? The the idea that um, offering an account of a a specific experience in a way that finds language that can adequately capture that experience, like that is part of what makes a share meaningful in a meeting and it's also part of what makes a story meaningful on the page as as a work of art. Um, And so in that sense, there are things that I, Practice or try or aspire to as like a as a, as a writer and as a you know storyteller in recovery. That idea that that offering some account of my life that has tried to find the most the most precise language possible for that experience. That that could somehow be a gift. I mean, I feel like that's that's the premise of personal writing that makes personal writing something other than narcissism. Is that idea that offering the self can be some kind of gift? Um, and I think it's also. You know, kind of a fundamental um, premise in recovery. So, in that sense, I do think it's possible to see eloquence and precision and articulation as um, you know, as as something much more than ornaments, as sort of handmaidens of meaning, rather than its uh, rather than its enemy. You want coffee, yeah, yeah,
3: sure. Yeah. Cool. Um,
1: in your process of writing, how
2: did you balance between writing memoir, writing these program and doing like literary criticism and that kind of stuff, like how did you strike that balance? Yeah, I mean I have to say, I found it to be an incredible relief, actually, to be able to shift between modes, I mean sometimes it felt like a structural mindfuck, like to be kind of trying to hold all of these pieces of this book and figure out how they were going to exist in relation to each other on the page, and the kind of terror of writing in an associational way, which was something that I had done plenty before, but more on the scale of like a 25-page essay as opposed to like a 450-page book and like how is how how can I structure a reader's experience of associational thought for 450 pages rather than 25 was like, um, yeah, that kind of organizational executive function stuff was hard, but but in terms of the actual experience of like moving between writing more personal material and writing literary criticism and spending time in archives and spending time in interviews, that was great because I mean, to put it crudely, like when I got sick of my own life, there were other lives waiting for me. And you know, when I, when I was exhausted by, you know, spending um, days nonstop with a subject, just sort of taking in their space their stuff and their wounds and their stories. Um, there was something that felt good about doing another kind of memory work or digging through Gmail archives or finding that you know specific email from my like farm CSA in 2009 and like what, what was I trying to do with my squash or something, you know, just like going back into those small moments of, of what my own existence was. Um, it could feel claustrophobic when I was in it for too long um, and so, in that sense, like, you know, an, an archive is like—I experience archives as relief for many reasons. But one of the reasons they are relief is that they are relief for my own life. But toggling between different kinds of work, sifting through boxes, sifting through memory, um, sifting through pages and pages of transcription—they were a, a really nice—they um, were nice counterpoints to to each other. Uh, yeah, it's there and then the over here. i was curious, uh, how did you come to terms with um, the article today that talks about anonymity at the level of pressure? Yeah, it's so a great question. Um, yeah, as, I mean, so for me, I, I do think coming to terms with it was was largely about my experience as a reader and my experience of gratitude for other people who had been public in different ways about their experience of recovery um, and just how much that had meant to me um, before I got sober and in early sobriety as I was trying to figure out sort of whether recovery would would be a space where I could find a home. Um, And then sort of thinking about breaking my own anonymity as one thing and breaking anybody else's anonymity as another thing, that distinction is like hugely important to me and so um, i yeah, put a tremendous amount of effort in the book to not only preserve anyone's anonymity, but also to, um, as I said earlier, kind of to people, for the people whose stories I was using to make it very clear, you know, when I sought them out, I sought them out as a writer, and, you know, they were, we both knew wh- what our conversations were about in the sense that they knew that, that you know, they, they were... They wanted to become part of this project of having their stories become part of a book. Um, and anybody who, who is somebody who is in my life who became a part of the book in any way, um, my practice is is always. And different people have very different practices around this, but it's always to offer the opportunity to read, uh, to read the, the manuscript in which they appear. And for us, I don't offer like strict veto power, but to have a conversation about that manuscript and and. Um, edit based on that conversation we've had so I try to make it a um, I try to give them a voice in that in that process as well um, which felt particularly important to me um, anybody who was in my life in recovery pretty much did have veto power around what whether or how they showed up in the book so to me it, it did feel important to sort of um, separate out my own anonymity and everybody else's in that way that's a good one
3: more. Uh, yeah,
2: yeah. I thought a long time about relationship and intimacy and capitalism looking the twelve step I really was struck decades ago by how the direction of relationship was uniformly not away from capitalism in a way that felt so
1: comforting to me. And you know, with our notions of privacy and intimacy changing so rapidly under I mean the new technologies uh, and this happening after I began thinking about this. I'm wondering what what you see as intimacy and relationship and um, addiction and how um, these changes in our perceptions and the public Spirit in our capitalist <laughs>
0: you know, if, if you see any any I don't know if you can rip it all off intersections.
3: We have the keywords of capitalism, intimacy, (laughs) social media, and I'm not sure, a couple other ones for you to go. (laughs) Um,
2: Yeah, well, one thing, you know, um, when you were talking about the um, sort of intimacy, intimacy and recovery and its relationship to capitalism, I was thinking about, I actually at one point wanted to write an essay, maybe someday I will, about, I was really struck when I watched that movie, The Wolf of Wall Street, about how some of those, like, Investment room meetings felt like they weirdly felt like AA meetings like turned 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 to the dark side or something like that. Like there was a way in which there was a kind of a practice of um, sharing and sort of um, offering up experience to sort of bolster the experience of other people. That I was aware that it was like it was like pivoted in that context into like sort of. Um, everybody's experience was in service of making money. <laughs> that was a different. That was a different way to understand that kind of camaraderie in that room. But I was thinking about how the kind of logic of what happens in meetings is is actually not entirely divorced from other forms of kind of like community building that we have in American capitalist culture. Um, but I guess I mean maybe I'll speak to the relationship between um, addiction and intimacy. Um, which is the one that I feel like my book is 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 sort of most interested in of all those possible connections, and um, and and that I was I was really in this book I really wanted to explore. I did not set set out to write about the relationship that ends up becoming a, a sort of a crucial part of this book, but I realized in the course of writing about my early sobriety that this one relationship that basically spanned the end of my drinking years and the beginning of my sober years was a sort of crucial theater on which like many of the anxieties that were underneath my addiction were also playing out. So this idea of sort of bolstering the self um, through something external, whether that external thing is like a lover or a substance, um, but coming to understand Eve Kasasi Sedgwick has this phrase, um, the self thus self construed as lack, um, that felt really resonant for me as I was writing this. Like basically starting to understand yourself as not enough by coming to depend on something external, another person, another substance, and that kind of like horizon of relief, taking something into you, whether that something is affirmation or booze or. the presence of another person um, that none of those things are intrinsically toxic but they can start to become toxic to me at least when they start to reconfigure your understanding of the self as like inherently lacking in a particular way um, and so I was really interested in sort of how can if there's something about addiction that felt correlated to me to a particular way of relating in intimacy like um, to feel like an endless Endless kind of need. Um, that what, what does intimacy then look like in recovery, and how can you sort of um, how can you need in a more sustainable way that doesn't feel bottomless in quite the same sense? Because there's something pathological about need. It's inevitable, and it's a part of intimacy, right? To need from other people, um, but to have to have a way of needing that doesn't feel like um you know the bucket with a hole in it that's just <laughs> like endlessly mm-hmm. leaking out. Um,
3: we do one more question.
1: Anyone? No. Uh, you kind of touched on it in the last answer, but I was wondering if you had formulated any kind of thesis about the more philosophical question. Like you, you mentioned David Foster-Wallace, he seemed to have this idea that addiction uh, was not just chemical kind of dependency, but this desire to um, reroute the fundamental state of dissatisfaction and loneliness and pain. So I didn't know if you had uh, in your own life anything that you I mean, the thing yourself mm-hmm. uh, and maybe ways that you yourself
2: in. Yeah, um the question I was, I I don't think I have a good sense for what's audible or not, but it was basically about um, the kind of philosophical underpinnings of addiction and, and um you know, thinking about how David Foster Wallace had thought about addiction as a kind of rerouting of a fundamental state of human dissatisfaction or or loneliness and um, how I sort of thought about um, what's underneath addiction in that way or what had been underneath it for me. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I um, in a way I think that my relationship to booze was like one of several languages in which I pronounced a certain kind of um, deep longing and that like, you know, having an eating disorder also felt like a response to a feeling of sort of bottomless longing. But it, the response in that case was one of like withholding and restraint. And with booze, it was more about um, indulging that sense of, of longing and sort of following it. like if this thing makes me feel good, like how can I follow that satisfaction and just kind of do more and more and more of it? Um, but I think that I think that in many ways, and this does connect to the last answer, I think that, that that one of the things I'm exploring in the book is this sense of real anxiety at what it need, means to, to need things from other people and that one response to that anxiety is to need something from a substance instead to sort of like redirect that state of dependence from a relationship um, to like a bottle of whiskey, right? And that, that there was something about that dependence that... Um, Disguised itself initially as a kind of autonomy, right? Like I won't I I will free myself from needing something from you by needing something from this other thing instead. And so in that sense, I guess it's a it's another kind of rerouting. Um, but as a writer, I think I'm much more drawn to kind of uh stacking up multiple possible uh explanations rather than settling on one and so the, the moments in the book where I do think about like in broader terms like what is addiction or how do we try to find an origin story for our addictions like say well it came from here, it came from my relationship with my father or it came from the loss of my brother or it came from this genetic inheritance of in my family. Um, I'm kind of more interested in looking at how we seek those explanatory stories out and and rather than sort settling on any one of them, thinking about why those explanatory stories serve different needs and how each of them might contain a a part of the truth and maybe none of them contains the whole of it.
3: You guys, now's the time when you go buy Leslie's book and then come back over here, I think, where she's going to assign them, so thank you so much.